You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. There was a, a man, a businessman. He needed a formal picture taken for, I don't know, it was a passport photo, whatever, but he needed to have it professionally done. And so he went in and had a, made an appointment. And he, you know, late, later on, the, the print was ready. And so he went and picked it up. And he looked at it and made the comment to the photographers, this picture doesn't do me justice. And the photographer looked at him and says, with a face like that, you don't need justice, you need mercy. <laughs> so if you've glanced at your sermon or your worship guide, if you glance at the, the, the sermon notes, uh, you'll, you'll know that we're in week two of a series entitled, What God Wants. And it's a series that's based on a single verse found in the Old Testament, a very, very short book at the end of the Old Testament, the book of Micah. And Micah 6, or verse 8, actually, and the verse is this. He, God, has shown you, O human, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Last week, we took some time to look at this idea of what it means and what it looks like to act justly. And I made this statement. As a Christ follower, you do not have the option to not care about justice. And again, we weren't trying to get into political solutions to justice issues, but the fact is we can't use that as an excuse not to engage and not to get involved. To act justly means that you have to actually do something. And within that context, we discuss the fact that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. And when God, to make, what does God expect from us? He expects us to act justly. Today we're going to explore a little bit more closely at the next portion of that verse when it talks about to love mercy. What does that mean and what might that look like in our lives And then next week, we'll finish up that verse as we explore the idea of what it means to walk humbly with our God. Now, I've often heard uh, when talking about mercy that a definition would be something like not receiving what you deserve. You deserve something. Usually, it's a punishment of some form. And instead of the punishment, you get mercy, which means that punishment has been removed. And that's very common, especially in the Old Testament. We see this idea of mercy. In the Psalm, David writes about God's mercy a lot. Uh, One example might be in chapter 41, where he writes, have mercy on me, O Lord, heal me, for I have sinned against you. So again, he's asking God to have mercy on him. The idea is that it's, it's God is withholding judgment. He's asking God, God, withhold your judgment from me. Isaiah is even more pointed. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. So again, it's this idea of God withholding judgment from us, what we see in the Old Testament. Now, as Christ followers, you and I, we are recipients of the great mercy of God. We are the beneficiaries, and we've received great mercy from God. Because of his mercy, we don't get what our sins deserve. Romans 6 tells us that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve death, 
in eternal separation from God, but instead we get life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Exactly what Susan was sharing with us a little bit ago, is that because of what God has done, we don't get the judgment we deserve, we actually get righteousness in its place. As a result of his mercy, we are made clean. I love Psalm 103, talking about this idea of sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is that? As far as the east and from what? It's basically saying that's a, it's incalculable. There is no, there's no measurement that, uh, that can tell us, that can describe accurately what that looks like. I'm uh, just finishing up uh, two classes I'm teaching, talking about the theology of God and how we understand God. And one of the things that's, that's said consistently throughout writings, throughout history, is that our vocabulary is incapable of accurately describing God. We just don't have the wherewithal to actually do it because our, we just, it's so, it's, we're, we're finite and he's infinite. But that's what, our, that's what our God is like. And the basis of our faith is built upon God's mercy towards us. That, that really, that's the, the basis of all we believe and hold true. It's predicated on this idea that God initially took that first initial step and had mercy on us. Because of his mercy, we don't get what our sins deserve. And because of his mercy, we experience ongoing forgiveness as we humble and repent. As we humbly repent, sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We are clean before God. He does not see our sin and he does not hold our past against us. He doesn't hold it against us. Sometimes we do that to ourselves, don't we? We hold ourselves guilty and we're, we don't let go. We're not able to turn the page, if you will. But God doesn't have that problem. It's interesting because sometimes we're, we have trouble forgiving ourselves and recognizing that, that we need to move on. And we project that same feeling to God. That if I can't forgive me, well, certainly God can't forgive me. And what we're clearly seeing in Scripture is God does forgive. And when he does forgive, he doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't hold it against us. Our, our sin is as far as the east is from the west. It just doesn't exist anymore. It's not there. Lastly, because of his mercy, we live in and live out the goodness of God. Psalm 23, surely the goodness and love, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, within the Old Testament idea of mercy, it's the idea of God withholding judgment. That's the thing. And there's all these New Testament passages, which we just looked at, that support that and, and but there's also, when we move into the New Testament, there's a very different view of what it means to have mercy. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was going in, and as he was en route, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done. And their sight was restored. 
In Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman from that area came to him saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And and her daughter was healed at that moment. In Matthew 17, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He said he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. In Matthew chapter 20, it's also in Mark and Luke, but we see Jesus and disciples together with a large crowd as they were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people told him to be quiet, and, and then he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus asked him, what is it you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And then there's this passage of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> We know, or you're probably fairly familiar with that story about uh, a man who was um, trying to decide if we want to have it. No, we're not going to put it on the screen. Um, a man is robbed and mugged, left for dead on the side of the road, and all the religious leaders would walk by and take a look and it would keep going. And people you would expect to stop and help didn't. And finally, a Samaritan, someone who actually was culturally opposed to. These, these were not, you know, this would be as if, the, the, the analogy would be as if somebody was today was, had the situation and a pastor walked by. And then another small group leader walked by. And you've got all these people you would expect would help. And instead, what happened would be a member of ISIS walks by and actually stops and help. That's the contrast that's going on here. And so the, the Jesus... <clears throat> Um, was being asked about this um, by a, a religious leader, actually kind of a, a lawyer uh, from the day, a leader of, the, he was an expert in the laws, I think is how I would actually phrase him. And so he was trying to justify his own behavior. And so Jesus asked him, so in this story, which is the one that was, was most pleasing to God? And his response was, the one who had mercy on him. So again, and then Jesus says, all right, go and do likewise. In each of these cases we've just looked at, when the person asked for mercy from Jesus, in every time, in every situation, Jesus grants them their wish and provides mercy for them. In each case, they're asking Jesus to remove the circumstances that are overwhelming their life. So in the Old Testament, we see this idea of mercy being the withholding of judgment in the New Testament, particularly in the life and ministry of Jesus, we see mercy as the intentional act of helping someone in their circumstances. And Jesus always granted mercy. So, since we are followers of Jesus Christ, what does mercy look like for us today? 
as any good sermon, we've got three different ways, the three points that we can look at for how mercy might look for us today. First one is that we choose to forgive others as God has forgiven us. Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In Matthew 18, we have the story of the unmerciful servant. <clears throat> do, we have, do we have that one on slides? I'm sorry, Caleb. Is that up there? Can't hear anything. Thank you. Can we, can we put that one up there? Perfect. Okay, so then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents... I'll come back to that. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went out and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Um, A couple notes about this passage. Um, the, the, um, the two, the, the money amounts, basically the first servant owed roughly, it was about 20 years worth of salary. So let's just for, for our purpose here, let's just say it's, it's about a million dollars. Okay. The, the denarii that the other person owed the second one was essentially one day's wage, hundred bucks, 200 bucks. You know, for, for, for most. So you see the contrast. And it was intentionally done that way. It was intent. Jesus, in telling the story, wanted to say, this man owed money he could never repay. In his lifetime, he would never be able to repay that amount. And what this other guy had could probably repay it in a day, just give him time. And he intentionally made that contrast. But I think it's interesting that in this story, if I could have that last verse um, up there again. Jesus makes it very clear as to how the Father looks at this. This is how God is going to treat you. To throw, he had the man thrown into prison. If you don't forgive your brother from your heart, um, that's very 
challenging, isn't it? Um, when you realize this is kind of a big deal. Now, it does create a few other challenges for us theologically as to God's behavior towards us and judgment and things, but the point Jesus is making is this is a big deal. Don't This idea of forgiveness... Now, a couple things in the passage. Um, Peter, when he's talking, um, asks, asks, when my brother or sister... Offend, you know, basically, these are people within the faith. Okay, so this is within the body of Christ that is referring to when they offend me or when they do something against me, how many times should I forgive them? So that's one thing. And also the way that it's worded up top, it implies the fact that the person has asked for forgiveness. So they've offended me and have now come to ask for my forgiveness. How many times should I forgive them? is what is being asked of Jesus. And Jesus says, you always forgive them. The 77 times or 70 times 7 isn't again the reference is that there's no limit. You always forgive. Um, This parable is about how Christ followers are to treat one another. Those within the body of Christ, within the body of Christ, unforgiveness is not an option. We must forgive. At the same time, what this parable doesn't address, in which anytime you talk about forgiveness, I feel I need to acknowledge the fact that to forgive someone doesn't mean that you automatically trust them. Okay? Usually if someone needs forgiveness, they've done something to break that trust. That can take time to be restored, if ever, depending upon the hurt and depending on the type of trust that was broken. Also, in a similar regard, that forgiveness doesn't equal restored relationship. Right. Okay, so I want to just qualify that you need to forgive. And the act of forgiveness is as much about freeing yourself from that burden and that bondage and that baggage that you're carrying around. But within the body of Christ, what's being told here is we can't be holding stuff against one another. If someone has offended us, we need to go and ask for forgiveness. And if someone asks us for forgiveness, we need to forgive them. That's what's being discussed here and that's what's being told. As those who have been given great mercy and forgiven of more than we could ever repay, we are called to forgive others in the same manner. So what else does it look like to love mercy? Another way, another way it looks is we choose to help people who are in places of need. 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As Christ followers, we are directed to love our neighbor, which requires us to act or move towards points of need. I've never seen this illustrated more clearly than uh, I did on a, a couple of trips to Rwanda. Uh, back uh, a number of years ago. In 2004, um, I had a chance to, we had some partnership meetings over there, and I had a chance to sit down with a woman, and if I could have a picture, the first one, Caleb. um, This is, uh, actually that's Catherine Hans. I'm going to leave her up there. Prior to meeting Catherine, in 2004, I had a chance to meet another woman. Her name was Mary. Mary was a widow. Um, Her husband died of AIDS. Um, but before he died, he infected her. So she's HIV positive, a single mom, no source of income, and has three kids. 
And um, I remember sitting in her home, if you could call it that, and I remember asking her the question, when you go to bed at night, before you fall asleep, what do you think about? And she said, I wonder who's going to take care of my kids when I die. There was just just this pervasive sense of hopelessness and despair. And it was, it, was, it was one of the hardest moments of my life because I couldn't do anything. And it was the organization we were working with, there was, there, there was even limitations as to what they could do just because of some of the dynamics at play here. But I just couldn't, sh- I just couldn't get over this, just this sense of hopelessness and despair that was there. Four years later, 2008, I went back. Um, again, more partnership meetings, and this time I had a chance to meet Catherine. Uh, Catherine, also a single mom whose husband died of AIDS, who infected her before he passed away. Very common um, that that happened. Um, she also has three kids, and that's a, her mom on the right. She's holding her youngest, uh, her baby. And... Uh, but what's fascinating here was just in four years in this virtually the same community area, the difference in, in just what was going on there. With her, we're, we're here, we're actually outside of her, the dedication of her home. Uh, so if I can see the next picture, that's her house. Okay? Now, you might think like, holy smokes, how terrible, until you realize where she was living. That was her house. Three kids, and you can see that right behind that little hangar, that's where she cooked breakfast and her food. Again, we're, we're, this was, that was where she was. So the idea that we're celebrating this new place, so I can put it on the next picture again, please. Okay, so we'll leave it there. It's a much more happy picture. Here's, here's, here's the thing. As, as um, just trying to dig into what's going on, what's happening, and... and to hear Catherine talk, she said, I've been embraced by the church. In fact, the house I have, the community, there was, there was for lack of a better term, there's kind of like this raffle as to who was going to get the house. In my church, everyone said, I should get it. And so they are all supporting me, and they're the ones wanting me to get this house. And so the encouragement and support that she was getting from the church was just night and day from what was happening just four years prior. And as I began to dig a little deeper, I said, what made the difference? What, what happened? And I was shocked to realize it was one single Bible verse. Matthew chapter 8. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him, and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleaned of his leprosy. Jesus touched the leper. We always focus on the fact that Jesus healed him. What we forget about is what leprosy meant in that time and day and age, that culture. To get leprosy was a death sentence. You were ostracized, you were sent out from the community. You were to not, in fact, if anyone came near, it was your responsibility to yell at them unclean so that they didn't accidentally come into contact with you. And so it would, that was the dynamic of the culture. I'm, 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 it's of my opinion that the man who was healed of leprosy, that was, that was a, a physical change. What was emotionally and spiritually healing for him was not the physical healing. Jesus touched him. Because Jesus said, you matter. I value you. Just that physical touch. So 
our friends in Rwanda, the church, many of the pastors realized someone's made this connection. HIV AIDS of our day is what was happening with leprosy back in the day. If Jesus can touch lepers, we can touch people with HIV AIDS. And that idea just transformed. So we see people um, like Catherine who now have hope and expectation of what God can do simply because a group of people rallied around and said, we're with you. We can't solve your problem. We can't cure you. But you know what? We're going to live life together and we're going to go through this time together with you. Which leads me to my last thought about what it looks like to love mercy. We choose to live out loving kindness to others. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see the story of um, David is now king. Saul's dead. <clears throat> David's establishing his kingdom. And he asked someone in his court, he said, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul? In other words, the king he just replaced. Is there no one from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Again, the idea of God's loving kindness is here. The word loving kindness is actually a Hebrew word of kased. And it's mercy that goes above and beyond what is expected. So G- David was asking, is there anyone upon whom I can show love that is beyond, beyond expectation? And you've got to remember back in the day when a king took over for another king, especially if it was an opposition, the first thing they did was kill off all the heirs. There was, that way there's no threat. No one can say, hey, I'm the rightful heir to the throne, and you create this division. You just got rid of them as soon as you could, and you just established your throne, and there was no competition. That's what David could have done with Mephibosheth. But he didn't. He said, actually, Mephibosheth, he called him and said, everything that used to belong to your, your grandfather Saul, I'm giving to you. And you have, free, you have a free meal pass at my table anytime you're in the castle. For the rest of his life, that's how he lived it out. David showed loving kindness, an act of mercy, an act of love that went above and beyond what was expected. Loving kindness is a choice and one that we make every day. I believe God is calling you. He's calling me. He's calling us to be people who choose to love mercy. We choose to forgive others when they've wronged us. And I would even suggest that we choose to forgive them even if they don't ask for forgiveness. But, that we're, but certainly if they do ask, that, that makes it even much more compulsory. We're to be a people who help others who are in need. And that we're to be a people who show loving kindness whenever the opportunity presents itself. This is what is pleasing and acceptable to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of the many, many passages and stories and, and comments and statements from Jesus and others that really do speak so very much about this idea of mercy. Lord, we have received so much. Lord, you have withheld judgment against us. And Lord, in response, we're to show mercy, to demonstrate mercy to others. Father, forgive us when we, because of those times where we did not forgive. We've held the grudge. We've held it over someone and, and against someone. 
Father, forgive us for not being willing to be inconvenienced by others in need. And Father, forgive us for not being willing to show loving kindness because our comfort, our needs were more valuable or worth more than others. Lord, we ask, Father, that, uh, that we would be a people who would walk rightly with you. Father, we'd be a people who, whose actions and behaviors are pleasing to you, not just because we can verbalize our salvation, not just because we've put our faith in Jesus, but because we demonstrate that every day. Father, may we be that kind of people. Lord, we continue to thank you for the mercy we have received. And Lord, in response, we determine here this day that we will be that kind of people moving forward. As we go to work tomorrow, may we be looking for opportunities to bless others. Lord, as we encounter those who have offended us, may we determine today that we're going to forgive them when that occurs. And Father, may we determine today that when we encounter need, our first response is to what, Lord, what do you want me to do? And it won't be, Lord, should I do something? Father, our response is going to be the degree to what we get involved, not if we get involved. So, Father, again, we want to be that kind of people that as you look down, that there is this pride, if you will, that you call us your people, your children. Lord, that's our desire. That's our passion. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to those purposes and to that end this day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Everyone says, Amen. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.